1: Hello, everyone. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of Hi, Jinx, with me, Jinx Monsoon. It's week three in my Broadway run of Chicago as Matron Mama Morton. Things are going great, but I've already talked a lot about that. So today we're going to shift gears and talk about gender politics and their unexpected correlation to racism. (laughs) It sounds heavy, but it is actually one of my favorite conversations I've had on hijinks, and it's not heavy at all. It's quite delightful because my guest today is my friend, Alok Vad Menon, and you are going to just love the conversation we have. If you are a, If you are a person trying to live a better, more peaceful, more mindful, compassionate, empathetic life, today's episode is for you. So buckle up, hunker down, and sink your teeth into some brand new Hi Jinx. M. Oh. M. Mom! Soon and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by poet and performer Aloke. Hi Aloke.
0: Hi Jinx. <laughs>
1: Now, I recently left you a voice message because I did not know how to pronounce you <laughs> last name. <laughs> no, um, it is Alok Menon, right? Yeah,
0: Alok Vad Menon.
1: Alok Vad Menon. You did it. <laughs> um, of course, I want to say man-all, like, from the craft. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, Alok... Okay, so we only recently met in physical space in Edinburgh at the fringe festival. I believe it's
0: called Edinburgh. Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and but we've been chatting and corresponding for some time, and I have been a huge fan of just the entity that is a loke c- for quite some time. If someone One, if you were meeting someone at a cocktail party and they Mm. said, what do you do? How would Mm. you describe um, your work and your advocacy and your activism to
0: a new human being? Yeah. (laughs) I would say, hey, everyone. My name is Alok, as in tell me a joke, Alok. (laughs) And I'm experimenting on what it means to be human and microdosing on joy, (laughs) comma, (laughs) sometimes.
1: Leave it to a writer to have a comma in their introduction. Um, <laughs> um Alok, you do a lot of advocacy and activism work regarding gender politics. Um, deconstructing what we have been conditioned to believe about gender, as well as, um, you know, examining the effects of whiteness and how basically the whole world (laughs) is set up against queer trans people of color. What motivates you to get up every day and fight that fight?
0: Hmm. Well, When you begin to take account of, like, all the devastating atrocity, you begin to ask, like, why are they so obsessed with us? You know, (laughs) if we're really what they say we are, um, insignificant, uh, distractions, make belief, then why have there always been slurs for us in every language? If we're really new and newfangled, then why have they for centuries um, always had characters that made us out to be villains so then you began to realize actually maybe it's because we're so powerful and i think that's the shift that i had to make as a queer person was to develop a self-concept outside of what straight cis white society told me that i was and to actually look in the mirror and see myself for myself and i began to recognize that in all the places that i was taught to shame myself That's actually where my power lived. And Mm. when I began to read queer history, I was like, oh my gosh, we are so powerful. For centuries, there have been so many attempts to disappear and eradicate us from this earth, and we didn't go down. And in Mm. fact, not only didn't we go down, we would use that as arsenal to become even more glamorous.
1: And it's it's just like with witches sorry to br- always bring it back to witches but <laughs> this is some this is not a new tactic power is witnessed and then power is snuffed out <laughs> <laughs> women are powerful so what has always happened to women they have been taught that they are not powerful you know i mean it's such a age-old trope in stories in our entertainment the most powerful people are often gaslighted into believing that they're weak because the people who are in power are so scared of losing that power that they'll manipulate the situation and anyone to stay in power um you also talk a lot well we're getting i'm getting ahead of myself okay i'm getting ahead of myself So that's the kind of work that you do. Um, Let's talk about where were you born? How did you grow up? And um, at what point in your life did this battle become important to you?
0: Well, I reckon people get so confused when I let them know that I'm from a small town in Texas. I say homo on the range. And I only left Texas when I was 18. And so, so much of my frame of reference- Was it
1: Texas or was it Austin?
0: No, it was Texas, Texas. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Real Texan Texas. Uh Um, And I'm so grateful for it, you know, because I think it gave me stamina to take whatever they're sending our way. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing nationally and internationally um, levied against LGBTQ communities is just hallway conversations I grew up with. People just saying, we should send all gay people to a private island where they can infect each other with AIDS and then kill themselves off. Like just some of the most atrocious, disgusting, homophobia, transphobia, and racism, uh, unimaginable for many people. And so from a young age, I went what I like to call on... <laughs> an artist residency that all the hot girls go to Mm -hmm. called dissociation. (laughs) And I was just not there Mm -hmm. because I was trying to protect myself. And what I was doing was studying for my debut. Mm. (laughs) And that's why I get really annoyed by that word closeted because Mm. it denies us of our agency. Mm. I was scheming and dreaming. And I was daydreaming, which I think is the most powerful thing we can do as artists. Mm. And so everything that I'm doing now is the distillation of that dream. Because for so long, there was such a severe repercussion to me being myself. I made a tacit promise to myself that I would never dim it down for other people. And I don't think that unless you experience, unfortunately, that kind of invalidation, do you have to question what the importance of authenticity is. And Mm. I think now... I understand that like it's possible to be alive and not really living. And I don't ever want to go back to that.
1: Wow. (laughs) I mean, honestly, there are so many times I'm reading a post of yours on Instagram and I just say, wow, honestly. Like, I mean, how old are you, Eloke?
0: I'm 31.
1: How did you get so wise at 31? <laughs> do you have a do you can you pinpoint it? Yeah. It, is it what you were talking about? Okay, so I think I think adversity speeds us along. Yeah. I think wisdom can come from time on earth. Mm-hmm. It can also come from tragedy, you mm-hmm. know, especially when you learn how to survive tragedy mm-hmm. or when you have to survive tragedy. Survival leads to wisdom, you know? Um, So, yeah, you grew up in Texas. You're you're a queer, trans femme person of color who was not closeted, rather scheming. Mm -hmm. Um, I, putting it bluntly, I'm sure you've had absolutely everything thrown at you. Yeah. And what I find probably the most awe-inspiring about you as a human being is you are not angry as far as i can tell and when i see you responding to just the most disgusting vitriol that a human being should ever have to face you find a way to respond to it with compassion empathy and patience that that person doesn't even deserve Mm -hmm. and i know that it's Uh, I know what it takes to practice that kind of compassion, empathy, and patience, and it is not easy. What motivates you to approach your conversations that way rather than telling people off like I'm sure you might be tempted to? Mm -hmm.
0: I think one of the most beautiful images of transition I've seen in the world is achieving Super Saiyan status. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like the more that I began to accept myself, the more I began to see the world for what it is. Mm -hmm. I began to really understand the reason that you hate me is because you're trying to heal yourself. Actually, everyone is trying to heal themselves. They just get lost along the way. And most people have been sold the lie that prejudice, anger, and vitriol will rescue them from the abyss of their self-hatred, that if we hurt other people, it will heal ourselves, and it doesn't, it doesn't. And so I feel bad for them and I feel pity and mercy Mm -hmm. because you're gonna waste so much of your life and energy on things that will never fill the void. I know the secret, you talk powerful and then you go home in the halo of your phone screen and you cry yourself to sleep. Mm. I know the secret, you think that you have all the power yet you don't experience it in your body, you're constantly afraid. I know the secret when you're harassing me on the street, it's because I'm a glimpse and a glimmer of a freedom dream that you didn't allow yourself to have. And so once I began to see the world with that kind of crystalline clarity, the only choice was joy. Mm. The only choice, because the myth that's told is not just that there are two genders, but that we're immortal. And Mm. I think ultimately it goes back to mortality for me. I realized that my life had to be beautiful because I was gonna die. And so because I had to flirt with that death from a really young age and seriously consider it. Seriously consider if I continue to be myself unapologetically, I might die. I said, well, fuck it. I better live.
1: Hello. My God. <laughs> um, I have a very similar sentiment. I always say life's too short to not be yourself, to not live it as yourself, or life's too short to be someone else, you know? Um, But, I mean, what you're saying just touches on so many things, and it's why i just i you know i quote you all the time <laughs> on this podcast because and i get most of my aloke through instagram so if you are not already following aloke on instagram um follow aloke on instagram because you you post so many different things but i always learn something from it and then of course you also just post lovely pictures of you and your gorgeous friends but um <laughs> one thing now you're going to say
0: gorgeous outfits and i feel a little offended <laughs> your gorgeous outfits goes without saying okay
1: but i w- didn't want uh, I-, I want people to be pleasantly surprised um <laughs> you um one thing that you post a lot about that i had never ever considered until you started until I started following you and seeing these posts, is the connection between racism and gender oppression. And you um, post a lot about the racist history of transphobia. And this is something that I never made a connection for in my own studying, and my own queer history studying. And um, it, it, they are intrinsically linked, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of erasure of trans people of color mm-hmm. um especially like back in history I think um one thing that we're starting to talk about is you know like there is a famous um woman known as the first trans woman in America, Christine Jorgensen, mm-hmm. but she was just the first white trans woman Mm -hmm. in America. Talk to my listeners a little bit about how racism and gender phobia are linked.
0: There's so many points of entry here, but I think it's most useful to think about this common refrain in popular culture now that trans and non-binary people are new. Mm. Because when we say that we're actually erasing the thousands of years of documented history of Black people, Indigenous people, and other racialized people who have long existed outside of the gender binary and use so many different words to describe themselves. And what often happens is that it's when a white trans person or a white non-binary person does something, then it gets seen as new and original when it's actually been happening for eons. And the reason that those people aren't considered trans in the way that we define it is because colonialism took a stranglehold on our definitions of gender. So actually this idea that gender is our body, not our social role within a community is a recent colonial idea. This idea that we have to go through medical diagnosis and medical procedures in order to be legitimately trans is a recent colonial invention. There have been so many ways of thinking about gender that have been lost and collapsed with the propagation of colonization across the world. So one of the things that colonists did is they introduced cross-dressing laws across the world and forbade and criminalized public displays of gender nonconformity, and told people these people are the enemy as they policed everyone into Western Christian gender norms, saying you can't have long hair if you're assigned male at birth, can't be bare chested if you're assigned female at birth. So the way that they indoctrinated people into the idea of two genders was by demonizing gender non-conforming people. So it was a PR campaign that basically said, if you step out of line, we're gonna punish you, kill you and criminalize you like we have them. And I think what's the hardest part about this is that the hangover of that colonial encounter means that oftentimes even the communities of color that I am a part of and that I love so deeply regurgitate these same vitriolic gender norms, tell me that I'm an embarrassment to my own people. One of the first comments that I always get is, your parents must hate you or be disgusted by you. And I'm always like, actually, no, my parents are totally great with me, but that says more about your pain and the way that you've been indoctrinated into this idea of gender norms, that your bodies are ugly or inadequate.
1: (sighs) There's just, oh my gosh. You know, um, and in in queer communities too. You know, of course, one of the big things of my adulthood has been just learning all the many layers in which I've been conditioned to feel and think and behave the way I used to think was natural just Mm. because that's what was taught to me. And I think natural is a word, especially with gender, that has been completely bastardized Mm -hmm. (laughs) in this context, because, um, you know, the people try to say, well, there's a natural way to things, Mm -hmm. right? But that is just another hypocritical stance they take Mm -hmm. when that's what serves their current argument. Because if you look into nature, Um, that's not true. Totally not. Animals find their own ways of doing things, and there is no hard, fast rules for anything, really. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What they do is they use natural to naturalize their political choices. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when people say something natural, it's the result of political choices with people with power. And that's why I think history is so important. You know, I know you share the same sentiment. I've been deeply dismayed by all the anti-LGBTQ legislation in this country mm-hmm. that's especially targeting drag. Yeah. And I, I think it's really important that people understand that this is not new, that these anti-drag and anti-masquerade laws were here forever, and that we look at the justifications that they've always used. And one of the things that they would always say is that as white people advance across an evolutionary hierarchy, they show a clearer differentiation between the sexes. And that, if you're visibly gender non-conforming, that's unnatural Mm. and you have to be selected out of the population. That was the justification of eugenesis in Germany and eugenesis here in the United States. The goal of these laws is an age-old project of trying to make attacks against LGBTQ people. And when I'm saying attack, That's not a metaphor. Attacks against LGBTQ people, natural. They're trying to make our political oppression, our economic subjugation and our disenfranchisement natural. And what's so sad is that we've naturalized that for ourselves as an LGBTQ community. The ways in which we tone it down, the ways in which we try to be be less visibly queer the ways in which we don't speak out, the ways in which we allow members of our own community to be targeted. What's felt so difficult and heartless about these past few years is that intimate betrayal of so many of our cisgender brothers and sisters remaining silent about the continued defaming of trans people in public culture.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, I think it's it's so... Uh, like, there's always a tug of war with progress. You know, there's a tug of war between the people who want progress and the people who want to push it backwards. Um, I think it's pretty obvious in our country that there's a tug of war between um, conservatives and sane, decent people. Um, (laughs) But within the community, it does feel like, and having been a drag queen for 20 years and watch the attitude towards drag shift rapidly over the last um, 15 years, you know, and largely due to drag race, but also just due to, new opportunities and new inclusivity and new representation. And of course, there's still a long way to go. But the fact that we are getting more representation and inclusivity in mainstream culture means we're getting to take steps forward in progress. And it means we're attracting the attention yet again of the people who wish to undo that. Now, within our own community, of course, there are going to be people who are only concerned about themselves because that's human, you know, like what I get sick of is when of course, I think the, I think very highly of the queer community. So I think we do hold ourselves to a higher standard of mindfulness because we have been through tragedy and we have been disenfranchised and we don't want to put that on other people, but that doesn't mean That there are not, like, groups of people who are very self-concerned and don't really mind if not everyone is being invited to the table as long as they are. How do you get, how do you say to our sisters, brothers and sisters, we need your help and your support in this more than just... Saying yes, Hanny. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I just, it's felt very strange to me to watch the success of commercial drag alongside these anti drag bills. Yeah. Because it, I think it's really important for people to understand of course, enjoy drag and show up at the polls mm-hmm. and show up against these pieces of legislation. I mean, in Arkansas, they were trying to say that it's drag for any person appearing in the quote opposite gender's clothing to appear in front of two people performing. I mean, like, that's essentially a cross-dressing law 2.0, trying to criminalize all trans people from existing in public space. So we have to care about drag in Arkansas, not just drag in New York, not just drag in LA. And we have to care about drag queens, regardless of their income status or their race or their popularity. And that due diligence hasn't been done, because I think the only way that trans and non-binary people and drag queens get any... Smidgen of acceptance is through celebrity invisibility. Mm-hmm. And that's a real issue. Yeah. Because there are everyday trans and non binary people, everyday drag queens who are being targeted with so much violence who deserve mm-hmm. respect. And yet people are in the comment section saying her makeup isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. <laughs> yeah.
1: And you know, and yeah, it, it, there's always going to be, it, it you know, These things are always a double-edged sword. It's all like, and as a product of (laughs) what you're talking about, as someone who clearly benefits from what you're talking about, it is maddening to see my own fans and audience members be so supportive of one drag queen and then so vitriolic to another just because that is our culture. And even though I think drag race does amazing things. The spirit of competition can be very toxic. Mm. I personally, as an artist love competing. I think competition brings out the best in artists. It's a, a term known as Arte friendly competition for the sake of creating better art. It has been polluted by entertainment, you know, and I, it's, Again, not a new thing. I mean, like, we used to think of the gladiators used to kill each other for sport, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is not new, the bloodlust and the, the you know, the desire to tear someone down as a form of sport or entertainment. But it is really disheartening when you see it within a community that is still struggling to even be taken seriously. And it feels very much a product of outsiders pitting us against each other. Yes, totally. And that's why I push as much as I possibly can for, you know, for the work that's for us to be created by us so that there are fewer outsiders polluting our message. This is not about drag race or any one thing specifically, this is just about the commodification of art and and the double-edged sword of this mainstream representation. Right,
0: listen, I love a good roast, you know? <laughs> and I demand the political right to be made fun of, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want you to make fun of me mm-hmm. because I know that it will be rooted in love. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue, is that a lot of the takedowns aren't rooted in love and transformation and a spirit of connection they're actually just rooted in disposability. Mm-hmm. They're rooted in isolation. They're rooted in, in exonerating people from places that they belong. Exile. And I think the reason that we do that is because that's been done to us. And so what I would say to my sis brothers and sisters is, I'm so sorry that you were bullied growing up. I can't even imagine what you've had to go through. But the way that you're going to heal from that, is not replicating the same things that were said to you to other people, Mm. is not becoming the bully and laughing at other people. The way that you're gonna heal from that is actually joining forces with other people who are bullied too and saying, we're gonna interrupt this cycle. I get it and I think a lot of times, a lot of cis gay and lesbian people are overcompensating because of real trauma. So they're looking, who can I have privilege over? And that's domination culture. And I think part of our healing practice has to also interrogate, where did we get taught this lie that dominating other people makes us feel good? It doesn't.
1: Paul said this to me when I was filming All Stars. What's the payoff? It was because I was extremely anxious about something. And Rue was like, you must have gotten a payoff about from this anxiety at some point. So now you've convinced yourself you Hmm. need this anxiety.
0: Hmm.
1: And you've probably convinced yourself that that's how you get your best work is is with this anxiety that pushes you to the limit or something but are you still getting that payoff and is there a different way to get that payoff you know like what's the payoff at the end of the day and if you're not getting a payoff then re-examine why you keep repeating that behavior and i think it's the same thing it's like maybe once Tearing someone down who deserved it or was freely giving you a hard time. Maybe you stood up for yourself once and maybe it was justified and it felt really good to speak up for yourself. And then we go seeking that feeling. Mm-hmm. And when you go seeking justice <laughs> or when you go seeking a fight, I think it works for both because I have a term called social justice opportunists, people Mm. who go looking for that fight, not necessarily because they want to do good, but because they're seeking that adrenaline that they get from the fight. And I see a lot of pointless fights happening because I think these people are, they need that payoff and they think this is the best way to get it. Adrenaline is addictive mm. and fighting generates adrenaline. Mm-hmm. I had to learn this in my own life, just with my own like work practices. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you're really irritable before a show, and you get into a fight with someone backstage, and then you go on stage, and that adrenaline feeds into having a great show. Do not be tricked into thinking that you should have a fight before every show because <laughs> it might have worked that one time. And it might have felt good and you might have delivered a good show. And then at the end of the night, everyone was like, ah, we got into a fight. But at least you got a hell of a performance out of it, right? So, yeah, that might be okay once.
0: But it is not sustainable. The ultimate (laughs) payoff is comfort. Mm -hmm. People are just trying to replicate what's familiar because Mm. what's familiar is comfortable. And our brains perceive what's unfamiliar with danger. And I had to learn in my own self and I'd be like, wait leisure feels dangerous to me. Mm -hmm. Remaining idle feels dangerous to me. I, like you, am touring the world all the time. And I just got back from two months of touring, but it was part of a larger eight month tour. And for a week I was just lying around so depressed and Mm -hmm. so anxious. I just had waves of anxiety and waves of depression. And my therapist was like, you have to really listen to what that's saying and, and what that says about you. And it all stems to this idea of I'm unlovable unless I'm doing, unless I'm out here, mm-hmm. unless I'm doing the work, unless I'm super active. And then it's like, that's messed up. Like, I believe I'm telling everyone else that they have inherent worth for being not doing. Why don't I believe that for myself? Mm-hmm. And then I start shaming myself for not being compassionate, which is <laughs> a whole nother, a whole nother issue. But what I've really realized is I'm like, okay, I seek, like, sleep deprivation, i seek, i seek like extreme tour regimens, nightmare, hellish schedules because that's familiar and what's unfamiliar is actually having to sit and encounter all of my pain. Mm-hmm. And so I will run and that's why I have so much compassion for other people because I look at my own life and I'm constantly running away from pain because it's uncomfortable and I notice that most people who are running to transphobia right now are running away from their own pain. This has nothing to do with me. This has to do with your pain.
1: And that is what you say time and time again when you take the time to mindfully and compassionately respond to hate that you receive just for being who you are unapologetically. And, you know, I have a strict abstinence rule when it comes to comment engagement now at this point in my life because when I have tried, and I have tried, <laughs> when I have tried to practice the same... Uh, compassion that I witness in your interactions with your trolls. Um, I, I, I usually end up uh, getting a little more uh, pointed in my, in my um, rhetoric. Um, So, and, and that, and that takes an emotional toll, you know, Um, I'm not, I, I find different ways to deal with that stuff. Um, And I feel like I, you know, we all got to find our way that we can approach, like, like sustainably go through our day to day. And for me, it's a strict comment abstinence these days. Who knows that could always change again. Um, I want to ask you with dealing with all of that and with being such a, like educated, mindful articulate person on all of these very serious, heavy topics. How do you then also turn around and do stand-up comedy?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just really funny that I've been out here forever being like, it is possible to be two things at the same time. That's what non-binary is all about. And yet people can't imagine that levity and gravity can coexist, Mm -hmm. that it can both be utterly fabulous and serious, flippant Mm -hmm. and ridiculous at the same time of being urgent and compelling. I actually think comedy has been so necessary for my survival because what comedy allowed me to do was to laugh in the face Mm -hmm. of so much, so many people who would rather I not exist. Comedy allowed me to preserve my joy and remind me why I'm still here. Mm -hmm. I demand the right to laugh. I demand the (laughs) right to laugh at myself. And that can feel really vulnerable in a culture that's constantly tearing you apart, Mm -hmm. but also remarkably healing to go on stage and to say you're an internationally tolerated drag (laughs) queen because what you're doing is defanging. Mm -hmm. And so what comedy actually allows us to do and specifically what camp, which is the tradition that I am most invested in, Mm -hmm. allows us to do is to defang our worst nightmares and fears and take power over it. And also, I just want to push back on this image and popular culture right now that those of us with rainbow hair are critically unfunny. <laughs> I promise you, I laugh at myself too all the time. <laughs> it brings me so much joy.
1: I, you know, I, I I've said very similar sentiments um, for why I do believe in a good roast and use mm-hmm. it too, a well done roast, you know. And I'm not talking, you know, like roasts are historically politically incorrect. I'm fu- if it's funny, I can laugh at practically anything. If there is like, you know, if it's funny, if it's not just horrible or shocking for the sake of being horrible or shocking, if it has a purpose and if the joke is smart and funny, I can find almost anything funny. Now, with roasts, though, especially when I have done roasts with other drag queens, um, I just feel like we take so much of the power back
0: mm-hmm.
1: when we get up on stage and say yes i know everything you could possibly say about me. i think doing roasts is what is a huge contributing factor to me even feeling emotionally capable mm. of going back on drag race mm. because you know in 10 years between season 5 and all star 7 My body has changed. My image has changed. The way I present myself has changed. So much about me has changed. And when I started doing roasts, it was like I had the chance and people I trusted and loved and had fun doing this with had the chance to take all of those things that people could possibly use to hurt me and then make a joke about it and then say, guess what? You can't hurt me with it anymore Mm because I already took the power. And that's how I feel about reclaimed words as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
1: So, as a as a as a um, person who is both uh, what levin <laughs> <Leaven. laughs> who is capable of levity and gravity, um, what are your stand up comedy shows like?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so funny because people are so surprised that I'm funny, and it, I just want to put like caveat like. Being funny online is too hard. So I just don't really engage on that. People
1: are surprised that I'm not dumb. Right?
0: (laughs) You know? And it's just hard because, I like, the internet comedian people, y'all are so smart. Like, how did you think about that within the purview of, like, 15-second clip? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. give me an hour-long show. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, I need – and I think this is the issue is that, like, you too, as a stage performer get it. No amount of clips can encapsulate what it feels like to be in a live audience. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm a live stage performer, and that's mm-hmm. what it's always been for me, and, and that's, my, that's my heart. And when I started to do poetry on stage, I was like, okay, these are all so depressing, so I'd start riffing in between the poems mm-hmm. to get people ready to receive the heartfelt emotion, mm-hmm. and then I had more fun riffing than I did <laughs> doing the poems, and I was like, okay, I guess I should start making more comedy. And... I think what I'm also really interested in comedy is that murky area of, am I allowed to be laughing at this? Mm. That's the funniest humor for me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where you're joking about things that are so painful and so hard, especially about race. I had a really fun opportunity a few weeks ago. I was doing a show in South Goa in India, which is where all the expats go. Expats are what we call white immigrants. Mm. And... It was a 90% white show, average age, 65 and up, in India. I was like, thank you, God, for this amazing opportunity. And I had so much fun cracking jokes, like, what's white art? Drawing borders between countries. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then so many of these people stormed out, you know, mm-hmm. oh left and called the cafe and were like, You're supporting racism. Mind you, this happened in India. <laughs> and I just think that's so funny. And what comedy allows us to do is that the real joke there is that you're offended by this and not by colonization. Yeah. What comedy uniquely allows us to do is you think I'm absurd. But wait till I tell you about what the Republicans are making up. That's the true absurdity.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, and that... Okay, so I'm going to circle back on... This is something I've quoted you um, as saying recently, and, of course, I paraphrased. So um, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about this. You have uh, cited many times in posts that I've seen that you think a big root of a lot of the hatred that we face is rooted in fear Mm -hmm. and even the fear of seeing someone living unapologetically and then realizing then that maybe you've been duped and maybe you're wrong and that fear that you're wrong or that fear that you could have had something else or that fear of like you mean it's possible I can be my true self and that's terrifying that fear can drive us to do really ridiculous things I think a very similar there is fear in comedy you know there's fear like you said can I be laughing at this I think there is we are at this time right now where people are so afraid of their own white guilt mm-hmm. that they will do anything to alleviate it and and i think different generations do it differently because i see older people go to the defense without any sense of looking at what's reasonable or what's logical. And then I see younger people doing what I call social justice opportunism, picking fights with the wrong people because they want to fight and they want to prove that they're a good white person. Exactly. And I mean, uh, you know, like, Thank God people want to prove that they're a good white person, but they're, you prove it by actions and you prove it by changing your behavior, not by picking fights and showing off your accumulation of buzzwords. And that might sound a little harsh, but that's how I feel, you know, we got to find a distinction between helpful arguments or helpful discourse and discourse for the sake of hearing ourselves talk. Mm. Um, but that's coming from a white person who probably has to deal with <laughs> white noise nonsense a lot less than you do. Uh, so <laughs> I, th-
0: I think when people think about fear, they think about like, you know, like the boogeyman, like are fearing like some extreme atrocity. But actually the most intimate fears are like fearing the unfamiliar. And I think what happens when people see us and they have such extreme reactions to us, it actually shows that people have a fear of themselves because mm. what they're fearing is, would I know who I was if these gender rules weren't real? Most people mistake the rules as reality. And mm. so when they see that those rules might not be as permanent as they thought, then they have to ask themselves, do I know who I am? And that's where the fear comes in through the unknown. And what I wanna tell those people is if you're having an extreme reaction to someone else that's saying something about you, sit with that pain, listen to it, And I promise you, you're worthy of expansion. And that's why it boils back to love for me. Most people grow up in family systems being taught that they only can be loved if they're the fiction their parents have told them they should be. And the process of becoming an adult is being, thanks so much, parents, Um, I'm gonna be myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's what coming out should actually be, is self-declaration. And most people haven't done that. So they only think that they're gonna receive love if they're someone else's fantasy. And what I'm saying is I'm gonna love you even if you're you. are you, And that's so scary to people because they don't think that, they, that they're worthy of love. And so ultimately why I return back to love, and I say this also to white people, is I'm so uninterested in that kind of performative activism that's rooted in a charity model mm-hmm. because actually what you need to accept is that whiteness is harming you too. It's hurting you too. It's made you feel like you only can have love through domination, mm-hmm. not that you have inherent and intrinsic worth. And I can't even imagine what that feels like psychologically, how it shows up in your body. And the kind of vision of the world that I have is what mobilizes me. I think I get a lot of frustration when people just know me for my critiques, Mm. my critiques of gender norms, Mm -hmm. my critiques of racism and queerness. I actually want to be known for the proactive vision of the world that I'm creating. And the world that I'm creating is one of zest and spontaneity, of roast, elegant, fashionable, roasts, um, of abundance, of curiosity, of meaningful exchange. And that's, I think, where my turn to comedy came from is I, I started to realize, like, I don't want to die miserable. I want to actually create a space on this earth for my joy. And so when I'm constructing a joke, it's not just about what will make other people laugh, it's what brings me joy. And what I'm doing is I'm celebrating my own joy, and I wanna show that you can look like me, that you can go through what I go through, that you can get spat on the street right after your sold out show, and you can make a joke about it on stage. And that's one question that I had for you, (laughs) is I feel like, you know, in the past year, your career has really catapulted. You're getting so many different opportunities. And one of my fears for that is that people won't allow you your simultaneity. Mm -hmm. They'll just see you as like, oh, things must be amazing. But I'm like, I'm sure there are days where it's really hard.
1: Do you know what is preventing that to an extent, I think, is... One of the things that has helped catapult me, like you said, is the complete candor I have had, I think, with my audience. Mm. I think especially in All-Star 7 and since All-Star 7, I have just been like, this is who I am, and I deal with these things. Some of them are really difficult, but these are the ways I deal with them. And I have been just complete. I used to think, "It I'm too much all at once. Like I need to slowly, you know, especially on <laughs> on season five of Drag Race. You know, I was I was already like witchy." I had the crystals and all that stuff. A lot of it just got cut because I had so many fucking things happening. Mm. There was only to- so many storylines about me you could take in at once, and that kind of convinced me: not this isn't on Drag Race. This, that's just that's how TV works, you know. Certain things get edited out. But I got into this mindset, and I convinced myself it was too much all at once. I I, I, I need to be selective about what I can be honest about. And then in in the 10 years between I have seen the benefits of honesty about my sobriety and the benefits of need, being someone who benefits from therapy and medication and um you know even feeling comfortable calling myself trans because you know you mm-hmm. you touched on it but I used to think I wasn't trans enough because of what we've been conditioned to believe you know, so I didn't think I got to say I was trans before I knew the word trans femme or mm-hmm. before no- non binary was normalized. You know, so there's all these times I've held myself back, and on All Star Seven, I literally put everything out there. You know, mm. I I gave you every little, and it, and that's, and and then I got here, so I have this. I, I had to tell myself, you really got to stop doubting that there that there are things about you that are too much for people to handle because actually being honest about being a practicing witch now witches come to my shows being honest about therapy now people tell me you know they're beginning their own journeys and and I don't do any of this to be a role model or be inspiring I just know what has helped me, and I love telling people, Hey, this helped me and it might help you' And then when I hear it did, that's the best added bonus to my job. Hmm. And all I am doing is being myself authentically and unapologetically. and I see, you mean, I mean you actively work for progress and you also just live authentically and unapologetically. So were you not actively working the way that you do for progress, you being you would still be an act of revolution and an act towards progress. You just take it a step further because you like to show off.
0: (laughs) Guilty as charged.
1: You are wonderfully insightful. You're extremely hilarious, and um, again, if if my listeners aren't already following you on Instagram, that is literally where I get my daily aloke. <laughs> follow aloke on Instagram. Follow all of aloke's work because you will learn something new every day. You will see um, lines drawn between things that you never realized. And it'll open up your mind to the good, the bad, and the ugly that we face as a society, especially if you are a queer person of color. (laughs) Especially if you are a queer person of color. I am a white queer person, and I learn so much daily that I would not have learned if I wasn't following someone actively teaching me about it. So do yourself the favor and and get on the alok bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there anything uh, that you can say to young writers, young activists, young advocates um, who might find themselves in similar situations, you know, um, scheming and plotting rather than um, being closeted. What would you say to other queer, trans, femme, non-binary people of color in Texas right now?
0: Yeah. Well, what I would say is that you're part of a powerful legacy. And even when you feel alone recognize that we're lonely together there have been people in the world who felt your same sense of pain and isolation and part of the way that power works is it want to make it wants to make you feel like you're the only person in the world going through what you're going through but there are other people going through what you're going through so when you feel despair or when you feel impossible know that there are people rooting for you and waiting for you I think I was told that if I accepted myself, I would lose everything, lose my family, lose stability, lose my professional life. But what they didn't tell me is that I would magnetize the people that I was looking for my entire life and that I would clear space to make space for the energy that I was seeking all along. So you're going to compel and magnetize the people who need to be around you. And you're going to expel the people who don't need to be around you. And I'm rooting for you.
1: Mm -hmm. Expelling the people who don't need to be around you. I used to think that, um, you know, a good person would be able to find resolution with anyone. And I was raised in a family, you know, like we, we had terrible fights between us, but we always found resolution. And that's what you do for family. I think this is a little bit of a myth. It's a little idealistic. Sometimes people are not good for each other sometimes you need breaks from people some of my best friends today I had to take a year-long break or or they took a year-long break from me but who's counting um, breaks are allowed um separation mindful separation is is healthy um, when it's necessary and expelling people you don't need in your life is an act of self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um Alok I have compulsory questions I ask every guest. Are you um ready to answer them? I guess so. <laughs> you can answer them however you want. <laughs> Before I do this, um, I want to just give a shout-out to um, uh, – they're a new friend of mine. Um, We only just talked through Instagram after they came to see Chicago, but I know they're a friend of yours. Sam Smith just won a Grammy um, with really incredible work. And if I dare say, like, this was – their response to a lot of hatred, mm-hmm. and they showed up with love and celebration and unapologetically st- staked their claim and won a fucking Grammy for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was worth noting today. Mm-hmm. Um, my first question for you, Alok, who is your celebrity crush today? Wow.
0: Hmm. There are so many, but Right now, uh, in a post-Grammy halo, I thought Cardi B looked so stunning in that Gaurav Gupta mm-hmm. gown. So that's on my mind. What did you think
1: of Lizzo's entrance? I I just saw a clip of her in a red pile of fabric just kind of you know (laughs) i just feel like lizzo always makes the best entrance and she always just looks like she doesn't give a shit she's it's like she's walking to the corner store but she's dressed in the right most luxury yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i just want to walk into every situation with that attitude like (laughs) here we are (laughs) um who's my celebrity crush today Uh, Oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. My celebrity crush today is um, my castmate, James T. Lane, who plays Billy Flynn. Um, When you see the show, uh, James is just one of those incredible performers that has taken a role that has been played so many times and has been played by so many um, similar men. And yet he finds a way to give you the exact character you're expecting and then also his complete original take on it. And it's extremely genuine to him. And he's family. So of course I'm (laughs) celebrating that um, he's getting to play this very um, esteemed male role in the Broadway world. Mm. Um, My next question for you is, are you spiritual?
0: Absolutely. I think spirituality saved my life.
1: I would have to agree. <laughs> my final question for you is: What is your go-to karaoke song?
0: Oh gosh, I am awful at karaoke, so it's usually go to the restroom when it's my turn. Sorry, I <laughs> skipped.
1: <laughs> if I if okay if if there were if you could. Right or wrong by singing a song right now. Oh, no. <laughs> What
0: song would it be? Oh, my goodness. It would be probably some, like, sad, like, death cab for cutie song.
1: <laughs> I can play I Will Follow You Into the Dark yes, on the ukulele. There you go. If you want me to back you up. <laughs> I can't do it right now because I got my nails on, but next time you're over, um, <laughs> I'm going to put you to that. Do you have anything to promote? I have something of yours to promote. Alok is an author, and you can find Alok's books, Femme in Public, Beyond the Gender Binary, and Your Wound, My Garden. Um, anything else you would like my listeners to know about? And um, I've said to follow you on Instagram. Where else Where will my listeners... Where else will my listeners be able to connect with you and receive your receive the um what do you call it? The the dharma of Alok? <laughs> yeah, I think that's
0: that's pretty comprehensive. I guess just mm-hmm. one final pitch would be like please look at your local state governments mm-hmm. and their anti-LGBTQ legislations. <laughs> And let's make sure that none of these get passed. Mm -hmm. And if you love me or Jinx, please show up for the people like us in your own community as well.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself, so I'm not going to try. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my guest today, Alok.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Um, We're coming to you live from Williamsburg, Brooklyn in New York City. Uh, No, I guess it's Brooklyn, I don't know. (laughs) In New York State. In the United States of America. Um, one of the rare opportunities I've had to um, interview my guest in person. But, um,
0: Alok, you are just... I, I think it's important that we come out as, that we're double penetrating this mic together.
1: <laughs> we are d- it is a double-headed mic and we are, we're tag-teaming it. Look, <laughs> you are you. Quite frankly, you are a hero of mine, and I just I'm really grateful to my um, best friend Kenny for for bringing you into my awareness. And I'm grateful to you for being such a gracious and generous person so that when I randomly messaged you on Instagram, you didn't get freaked out and we got to become friends in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Alok. Thank you. And thank you all so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else, and I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hi Jinx! M. Oh. M. Mom! To listen to Hi Jinx One Day Early and Ad Free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Silio.